Thank you very much, uh, Phil. Good evening, everybody. It's good to see you. It's uh, really lovely to be here. Who doesn't need, at one point or another, a fresh start? I'm sure Harvey Weinstein would like one. <laughs> or Michael Fallon. If they could go back, I hope they would change their behaviours. Serious things that they've done. Who would have thought that a career that had spanned 40 or 50 years embracing Oscars and BAFTAs and all kinds of things, within 10 days of the beginning of the announcements of his um, criminal behavior, would have seen the company going into receivership? I'm pretty sure he didn't see that coming. Or what about Theresa May after her speech? I'm sure she'd like to have started again. It wasn't the poor woman's fault, was it? That somebody stuck the letters on the board at the back and they fell off at the wrong moment. She didn't pay the comedian to stand on the stage and say, Boris has asked me to give you this, Teresa, a P45. But don't look so far away. How many husbands or wives sitting here this evening could do with a fresh start? A mistake that only you or your spouse knows about. If anybody else knew about it, you'd be red-faced with embarrassment. And if you could, you'd rewind the clock. You'd start again. You'd avoid the situation that you got yourself into. If only you could have a fresh start. Or maybe you're sitting here this evening having gone through the pain of a divorce. Nobody I have ever met walks down the aisle thinking, well, this will be easy to get out, with, out of if I want to. So many people who have been scarred and broken. Maybe you're the person that made a mistake. Maybe it was your spouse. Maybe it was both of you. And if you could start again, you would. And you come to church week in and week out and somehow feel less accepted than everyone else. Because before you think, before anybody sees who you are, they see a label. That's the man that lost his business. That's the, the woman who was divorced. That's the guy who made the mistake. So you sit week in and week out enjoying God's presence and worshiping with God's people. But deep down inside, there's something that holds you back. Or the student that's messed up despite friends telling you, parents telling you, colleagues telling you, tutors telling you, lecturers telling you, you're going to have to work. You said, no, I'm going to be the one that will break this rule. I'll start around about May and it'll all be fine. And then you realize that it wasn't. Or maybe it's a work colleague. It's not you at all. And you know the mess that they've got themselves into. Or maybe it's your son or your daughter. Maybe you're here this evening and you're a businesswoman. You've made some pretty bad decisions. Or a businessman. Maybe you're approaching the end of your career. Do you know about four months ago, I conducted the funeral of a pastor, a friend of mine who had uh, lost touch with me. And um, his estate, his lawyer contacted me and asked me would I conduct his funeral. I said yes. Nobody came. Forty-five years pouring his life into a church, 
ended up one church, a number of churches, and nobody came to his funeral. Imagine being in that position, coming to the end of your life, and there's nobody there. Something went wrong somewhere. Sometimes we realize that we need a fresh start because we see it through the bottom of a glass. Sometimes we see it through a slammed door. Sometimes we see it as we lie looking up at a ceiling in a hospital. In a hospital. Sometimes we see it as we turn and walk away from a coffin. But we realize that something needs to change. The good news is that Jesus Christ upon whom the whole of the church is built, is an expert in fresh starts. He takes broken lives and transforms them. He takes sorrow and transforms it. He takes suffering and transforms it. He takes a surrendered life and does something remarkable with it. He takes a broken heart and makes it into the most beautiful piece of art and hope that the world could ever see. He can transform a city, a community, a family, a nation. All it takes is a yes from you. Isn't that remarkable? All it takes is one word. Yes. When he says... Do you want me to transform you? All you have to do is say yes. The rest flows from that. We preachers and pastors and theologians can make Christian faith very complicated. Actually, it's not that complicated. If God asks you something, say yes to him. I want to look at two particular portions of the Bible with you this evening. So you're going to need to turn your Bible on if you've got one with you. Or find a physical one. I prefer a physical Bible. Who hasn't got a Bible with them? Everybody's got a Bible. That means you can all, all I'm, I'm not, I wasn't going to name and shame you, don't worry. All I want to do is make sure that everybody can see the text. So if you can't see a Bible, this is a moment where you can turn to the person beside you and say, give me that book now. I'd like you all to be able to see one. And there are two portions of the, the New Testament, which is the latter half of the Bible, that I'd like to talk to you about for a moment. The first is two or three chapters, actually a few more than that. And the first half of a gospel written by a man called John. We'll come to the second uh, portion of Scripture in a minute. When I die, and I will unless Jesus returns, after I have met Jesus Christ himself... The person I am most looking forward to meeting is the Apostle John. I have a list of questions. You're going to think that I'm talking nonsense. I have a list of questions that I've written down that I'm going to ask that man. About things that he said and the way that he wrote and the messages that he gave and the people that he met and how he saw things that other people hadn't. One verse, if I ever get to know you a bit better, I'll tell you about it. One verse I've spent nearly 30 years of my life thinking about every day for 15 minutes um, since I became a Christian and I still don't understand it. John wrote it. 
In fact, it's one word. Maybe I'll tell you in the next couple of Wednesday nights or something, I don't know. But when you read John's gospel, the first half of it, uh, from John chapter 1 through to John chapter 12, really, deals with 33 years and five months and three weeks of Jesus' life. The second half, which goes from chapter 13 all the way to the end of the gospel, deals with seven days. It's a remarkable thing that he takes half of his gospel to cover 33 and a half years and half of his gospel to cover seven days. He just presses a go slow button in the last half of the gospel so that people that are walking with him can really understand it. Here's why he wrote his gospel. He tells us this in John chapter 20. So that the people that were reading it might believe that Jesus Christ was the son of God. But at the beginning of his gospel, he does this really interesting thing. He presents a whole range of different people that Jesus meets. And all of them get a chance of a fresh start. And I want to just go through them to help you see who they are and what God does with them before we turn our attention toward the end of what I want to say to another portion of scripture that John wrote from a very different set of circumstances. There was a religious man in John chapter 3 called Nicodemus who said yes to Jesus eventually. Not in the story that we will read. He came to Jesus in the night. It was dark. He didn't want to be seen. He was embarrassed. He didn't want to be put under pressure. He didn't want his leaders to know. He was, the member of a, he was a member of a council called the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin, depending on how you pronounce it. It was 70 people that looked after Israel. They were the kind of top-notch people that decided how the whole of Jewish life happened. Him and his friend, Joseph of Arimathea, were on the Sanhedrin, and they both were interested in Jesus. Nicodemus came to see him. John chapter 3, a religious man who gets the chance to turn over a new leaf. Listen to this, John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Where did that come from? He didn't ask about being born again. In fact, he didn't ask a question at all. He comes to Jesus interested. He comes to Jesus intrigued. He comes to Jesus drawn somehow. But he makes sure he comes at night so nobody can see him. And he says, we know that you're special. And Jesus cuts through everything and says, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Nicodemus doesn't understand what Jesus means. So in verse 7, Jesus says to him again, do not be surprised that I say to you, you must be born again. We don't know if Nicodemus made a decision that night. We have no idea, but we do know that somehow he was transformed by Jesus. Because when you get to the book of Acts, you hear mention of him again. And this man has been impacted and changed by Jesus. Are you religious? I don't mean by that, are you simply a churchgoer? I mean, maybe you're a, a Christian and the only person that's ever right is you. Have you ever met anybody like that? They're a disaster to have lunch with, aren't they? A 
person that knows the answer to every single question, that doesn't budge on anything, that has, the last time they discovered something new about God was 50 years ago. And you can tell. There's something very, 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 very scary that happens when you end up in a church full of religious people. The joy seeps out of the bottom of it. The life and the expectancy and the vibrancy seeps out of the bottom of it and you can feel it. You're going through the motions of church, but there's not that vibrancy and life and possibility that God could do anything. I don't want to end up like that. I don't want to get to the end of my life and be one of those men that harks back to something that happened 50 years ago as if it was the biggest and most important moment in history. I want to end my life believing that the best is the day after. And I'm going to pray for revival until the day I die for Northern Ireland and for the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland and for the continent of Europe. And if I die without seeing it, I'll die believing that it's going to happen the day after I die. Don't become a religious person. Don't fall into the habit of doing church without doing God. Give yourself space to hear him, to encounter him, to be changed by him, to be transformed by him. Good news. If you're religious, you can turn over a leaf. You can start again. You can enter into a whole new chapter. Maybe church has got a bit jaded. Maybe Bible reading has got a bit boring. Maybe singing has got a bit dull. Maybe you think, oh, all they ever do is repeat those choruses in church. I wish we had an organ back and we could ban the drums. That would be terrific. And I don't know why we ever left the overhead projector. Personally, I've always been in favor of the Gestetner, the one that spews purple blood at you when you try to photocopy by moving a handle on the side. Maybe God just needs to touch you afresh. Maybe deep down underneath everything, you're disappointed with God. Maybe you're disappointed with church. Maybe you're disappointed with how you've ended up. That shows itself in cynicism and jadedness. But in John chapter 4, just the next chapter, Jesus meets another person. This time, it's a woman. If the religious can turn over a new leaf, then so can the rejected. The story of this woman is a remarkable one. I want to read all of it. Just I'm not going to make much comment on it. I just want to read it so you can understand the power of it. There is power in hearing the Bible read out loud. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee but he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. That's an Old Testament story. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. 
Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you've no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he. The one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went back to the city, and she said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He can't be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. If you forget everything else that I've said, remember that story and let it dig into your heart. If the religious man got to turn over a new leaf, then the rejected woman gets to turn over a new leaf. How do I know she's rejected? She comes at midday when nobody else would be there. She walks on her own because no one will walk with her. She's in this situation because she has been married or had relationships with a number of men, so she's rejected. She's looked down upon by the village, so she's lived a life on her own. This old, um, religious, powerful man comes at night. This desperate woman comes to a well during the day. This religious man has all the questions and all the answers that he, ha- that he needs tied up in his head. This woman doesn't have any answers. And yet it's not the religious man that identifies who Jesus is. It's the rejected woman. The religious man with all of his knowledge and all of his theology and all of his understanding and all of his spiritual practices and all of his habits misses this remarkable statement from Jesus. I am the Messiah. 
The text that you read had Jesus saying, the John saying Jesus had to go that way. He didn't have to go that way because there was no other way to go. There was a shorter route. He had to go that way to meet that woman. He had to go that way because if he didn't go that way, he wouldn't have found her at a well. Imagine that at the heart of the Christian faith is the conviction that God comes looking for the rejected. That he walks into houses, that he walks down streets, that he goes out of his way to find us. If he does that, shouldn't the church? If he goes out of his way to find rejected people, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we be making our plans so that we can reach those that feel that they're not good enough? People that have been running away from society or community. How many people in East Belfast are locked away? Aware of their sin, aware of their mistakes, aware of the mess that they've made of their lives and they've decided never to engage again with church and never to engage again with others. If there's any part of the United Kingdom where there is a strong understanding of Christianity, it's this part. How many people have walked away or are hiding away from God because they think that they have been rejected by everyone else so why wouldn't he reject them too and he makes his way to them and finds them and he offers them life and hope and forgiveness he doesn't avoid difficult questions go get your husband haven't got one no I know that doesn't avoid the mistake, doesn't run past it, doesn't overlook it, doesn't pretend it doesn't matter, looks at it head on and still says to her, there's an answer looking you in the face. Maybe you're rejected. Do you know, I recently met a man who has uh, been an elder in a church for 35, 40 years. And his his, uh, daughter, many, many years ago, fell pregnant at 16 He was on the eldership. And as a result of the decisions that they made, she was asked to get some help and support. And she couldn't do that. They then got a bit legalistic about some of the things that they were doing to try and help her, and it didn't work out. His daughter hasn't been in church for 33 or 34 years. I said, would you come to our church? And would you see if I could invite your daughter? Could I meet her? He said, she won't meet anybody. So I sat with her, now in her 50s. And it was like talking to her on her 16th birthday again. She jumped all the way back to the reasons that she had given up on church because she thought, well, church gave up on me, therefore God gives up on me. How do we reach those people? Or maybe that's you. Here, physically, but not spiritually present in the room but not present before God a new opportunity for the religious a new opportunity for the rejected and a new opportunity for the ridiculed in John chapter 7 this is an interesting passage of the Bible because some manuscripts don't have them this passage in it it's a story of a woman who has taken an adultery and she is, um, Jesus encounters her when she is lying in the dirt. And there are people all around her about to stone her. 
And there are Pharisees and lawyers and scribes that want to catch Jesus out. You can read the story in John chapter 7. So one of them turns and, 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 and tries to kind of um, catch him out. And we're told in the scriptures, I'll read it to you so that you don't think I'm making it up. John chapter 8, the beginning of it. And the end of um, chapter 7. Then each of them went home while Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, verse 53 and verse 1 of chapter 8. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. (laughs) And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. Have you ever thought about that woman? Caught in the very act of adultery. I'm aware that there are very young children here. So you can work out what that means, can't you? Who caught them? What to do with the bloke? Is he there too? Presumably, yes. So you have them perhaps in a state of undress, dragged out. And what do the people that have dragged them out do? Make a spectacle of her, ridicule her in order to win an argument with Jesus. But look at what Jesus does with this ridiculed woman. I think this is the most amazing thing. We're told that he gets down on the ground and he's writing on the ground. There's only three times in the Bible where we're told that God wrote. The first time is when he wrote with his own finger on stones the law that was given to Moses. It's told in the book, as the story is told in the book of Exodus. The second time is in the book of Daniel when there's a hand of God that appears on a wall and it writes in a Babylonian or in Persian, mene, mene, tikal you pharisin, which means you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. In other words, you've failed the test. The third time that he writes is on the ground here. There's no other place. Once he writes and gives the law. The second he writes and he uses the law to say you're guilty. The third time he writes he releases a woman from the penalty of the law. This ridiculed woman is restored to dignity and humanity and respect again because Jesus refuses to make a spectacle of her. But he also refuses to ignore the problem again because he says to her, woman, do not 
sin when you leave here. Turning over a new leaf for the religious, for the rejected, for the ridiculed, and perhaps for the self-righteous. It's only when you go back to the beginning of John that you begin to realize that actually there's a method in all of this. There's a real story. So to help you understand that, turn back with me for a minute to John chapter one. I just want to highlight a couple of things to you. John has this um, aim, this perspective. He wants to make sure that people know that he's writing an, a letter of invitation. His gospel is an invitation to people. So to get the context, all I want to do is talk about a couple of verses with you now. Look at verse 29 of John chapter 1. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, is baptizing. And here's what we read in verse 29. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the church. Is that what that says, that text? What does it say? Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That couldn't be possible, could it? As an old man, John wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus, and here's what he says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. He is the atoning sacrifice of our sins, but not of our sins only, also of those of the whole world. When Jesus Christ died on a cross, here is the greatest tragedy of all things. He died to take away sin from all people. Only those that believe that can enter into an experience of that forgiveness. You can go to church for the rest of your life and not know that. You can never miss a meeting. You can read the Bible. You can pray. You can sing. You can do everything. You can tithe. You can volunteer. You can become a leader and a deacon and an elder and a pastor and still not know that. You can sign up to become a member. You can hire and fire and not know this. The greatest invitation of all is sins forgiven. A slate wiped clean. The greatest new start. The greatest fresh start is the invitation to new life. And it's not just something that we discover once. We as Christians live in it every day. What will deal with your terrible mistakes last week? The fresh start of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you. The forgiveness that has been achieved for you and for me. But look at the way this passage unfolds. It's amazing. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. Then we read of a series of people that meet him. Peter, James, um, Andrew, John. Look at verse 39 of the same passage. James and John, two brothers. And we're told here that John the Baptist says to them, come and see. Jesus answers, Jesus tells them to come and see. John the Baptist explains to these two disciples of his that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He points them to Jesus and they say something to Jesus. And Jesus says to James and John, come and see. If you want to know more about me, come and see me. And again and again you hear this phrase when he meets Nathaniel. Just a few verses later, in verses 43 to 51, Jesus looks at Nathanael and sees something different. In verse 47, 
we read the most remarkable thing. Look at it. When Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said of him, here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathan asked him, where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. And the king of Israel, Jesus answered, do you believe because I told you that I saw you under a fig tree? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What do you see when you see Jesus? A teacher? A moral example? A prophet? Somebody that your parents believe in? What do you see when you see Jesus? And what does he see when he sees you? A cynic? A believer? Somebody who's willing to come and see? In verse 29, we say, we read that John saw Jesus. In verse 36, we read this phrase again. See, again and again, this word is used in verse 32, in verse 33, in verse 34. In verse 39, Jesus says to James and John, come and see. In verse 46, he says to Nathaniel, come and see. And here's what he says to you. Here's the dichotomy of Christian faith. If you want to know who Jesus is, you can't know from a distance. You've got to come and see. He invites you to look at him. The only way to get to know him is in relationship. But the good news is that I can with assurance look at, what's your name? Brilliant pianist, by the way. Jonathan, the brilliant pianist. He says, come and see, all the way back to Paul. Or what, no, up there. What's your name? Diane. All the way, I know that because you comment on Facebook. (laughs) All the way back to Diane. (laughs) Where, that wasn't a word of knowledge for those of you that are anxious about. He says, come and see. He invites us to come and see. Every one of you are invited. Do you need to turn over a fresh leaf? Come and see. Do you need a fresh start? Come and see. Are you religious? Come and see. Are you ridiculed? Come and see. Are you rejected? Come and see. Are you self-righteous? Come and see. How does God bring about this new change? It's one simple verse I want to share from you from Revelation chapter 21, and then we're done. It's the very end of the story. The end of the Bible is this. God gets Everything sorted out. And in the very penultimate chapter of the Bible, here is something that Jesus says to John. Listen to these words. Behold, I make all things new. Who needs a fresh start? Me. How often? Probably every day, Lord. I make all things new. The blessing of being a Christian now for 31 years is I can look back across my Christian life and I can see the faithfulness of God again and again and again and again and again. But you know what? I don't want to live 31 years ago. I don't want to live in my faith 30 years ago or 25 years ago or even six months ago. I want to live in the reality of the God who makes all things new. That gives me the chance to discover something more about him, to go further. And if you need forgiveness, if you need a fresh start because you've never been a Christian, he says to you, I can make your life over again. 
I can help you to start with a clean slate. And if you're already a Christian and everything has been stacking up on top of you and you just feel stuck, he says, I can give you another chance. And maybe you're bored with church. He says, well, sometimes so am I, but don't tell anybody. (laughs) But I love these people. I died for them. Let me give you my eyes for a minute. When you look at the church, what do you see? A load of hypocrites? Well, you know the old phrase, don't you? Come along, one more will make no difference. People with mistakes and broken promises and broken lives, faulty human beings, join the club. You're looking at one. And when God looks at me, just like he looked at Nathaniel and he said, actually, I can see better than other people can see. I can see your heart. I can't get over it. I'll never get over it. Doesn't matter how many letters I end up with after my name. Doesn't matter how many things you introduce me as. In the end, here's what I am. A sinner saved by grace. Someone that God picked up and loved and accepted and changed. And I can't get over it. I never want to lose the wonder of that. That every day I get to start again. That every day I get to start again. And that no matter how dejected or rejected or useless or worthless or hopeless I feel, I get to start again every day. And so do you. So instead of just doing church, instead of just going through the motions, instead of allowing yourself to get distracted, let God come alongside you again tonight on the 6th of November, 5th of November, and let him give you fresh passion. What's the leaf he needs to turn over? Maybe you need to make a call. Maybe you need to say to him, I've taken you for granted, Lord. Maybe you need to remember that the last line of your story is not written yet. And you might be in a place tonight which is really difficult. Failed A-levels, failed 11 plus, failed GCSEs. Chucked out of a job in a marriage that's difficult. Struggling to keep things together. Wondering where the next 10 pounds going to come from. Relying on other people's help to get you through from one month to another. Sitting here feeling as if you've made a thousand mistakes. Let God give you something fresh. Let him touch you afresh. Let's pray. I think the cultures of churches are really important and I do everything I can not to dishonor them. So I don't want to dishonor the culture of Dundonald Elam, but I don't know what it is. So I'm going to ask you to be bold and brave. No one else is looking. Please leave it that way for a few moments. I want to make a an invitation so the worship band can respond too first. Don't come yet, I'll call you in a minute. If God has spoken to you, if, you, if there's something in you, I'm not gonna ask you what it is. And you're saying, actually, Lord, I just wanna, I want a fresh start. 
nobody else's business. It's just between you and me. And you're already a Christian. Then I want to be able to pray for you properly. I'm not going to call you to the front. But just where you are, I'm only going to ask you once. Put your hand up and take it down again. Don't be embarrassed. Amazing. Anyone else? Loads of you. Thank you. Don't be, don't be remotely anxious. This is nobody else's business. Thank you. Thank you. Must be 70 of you have responded to that. That's amazing. And humbling. Here's my second question. And I have no idea if there's anybody here. You've never surrendered your life to Jesus. You've been caught. I asked this question last week in a church I was preaching in, and 23 people began a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's nothing better. Is there anybody here this evening that needs to start a relationship with Jesus for the first time? You don't understand everything, but you know that he can give you a fresh start, that he can forgive you. If that's you, whatever age you are, I want to pray for you. Just put your hand up and then take it down again. No one's looking. I will always make this opportunity available to people. I think it's really important. Is there anyone, you've come with a friend or a family member, and you want to start a relationship with Jesus? Lord, thank you for your power and presence here. Thank you that you love us and that you care about us and that you're present in this room. Thank you that you love me when I'm religious. Thank you that you've loved me when I was rejected. Thank you that you've loved me when I'm ridiculed. And when I behave self-righteously, even then you love me. Thank you that your love is so powerful and so personal. And in this room, help people with a fresh start. The marriages that are rocky. The men whose faith is on the brink of extinction in their heads and hearts, kindle it into flame. The women who've been hurt, breathe by your spirit new life into them. The folk that have lost their way, bring courage and confidence and joy again. The young people that feel as if they don't fit in, by your spirit, visit them. And as we respond to you now, we invite your Holy Spirit to move amongst us as he wants to. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask the band to come back. I don't know, what are you going to sing? Pardon? Brilliant. I'm going to ask you to do something for me. Is that okay? Well, I'm doing it anyway, so bless you. (laughs) 
I want you to sit as you hear this song. And maybe you could just start to play it through for me without starting yet, folks, please. And if you can, maybe you're not used to this, I want you to ask God to speak to you. Maybe you already know what he's raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you already know the thing that he needs to deal with in you. Maybe you're so on fire for God already that you just want to step into the next chapter. Fantastic. But as we sing, when you get to the moment where you want to say, Lord, I want to, I want to enter into this. I want to, I want to declare this. I'm not just singing a song. I'm, I'm going to declare it. Then at that point, if you're willing and able, stand. So feel comfortable to stay seated throughout this song if you want to. You might want to stand the minute we sing the first line. I don't care. This is between you and God. But if there's a moment through this song where you say, Lord, I just want to step into a fresh season with you. Then at that moment, stand. And if you need to raise your hands, raise your hands. If you need to sing out, then sing out. If you need to sing, as I say, Welsh Revival style, filling the room with harmonies and noise and delight and joy, then do that. I'm not trying to manipulate you. I just want to give you freedom to let the Holy Spirit stir something in you. And don't be put off if the person beside you is quiet. And if the person beside you is noisy and you're quiet, don't shush them. Don't let your cynicism rub off on somebody else. And just because you may not encounter God in this moment, don't assume that nobody else will. Let God do what he wants. So Lord, have your way now. Amen.